Als Verteidiger müssen Sie Angriffe von Cyberkriminellen jederzeit erfolgreich beenden. Cyber Reason kehrt den Vorteil des Angreifers um. Von Endpoints und überall. Join the conversation. You're with Kate Salk. And so it's nine minutes after ten o'clock and I'm super excited to chat to Chris. Good morning, Chris. Morning. How are you doing? I'm very well. I don't think we've chatted before. Nice no, to I don't meet think you. we have. It's very Saskia. nice to meet you too. Hello, Saskia. You know, when you said, got the highlight of the show, I was thinking, fantastic. That's going to be the naked <laughs> scientist. No, no, it wasn't. But I'll try and be the highlight because it's very easy to be the highlight when you're the first thing in the program because no one's heard anything else yet. So you're the only thing they compare it with. So uh, actually, I am so far the highlight and it might disappoint by the end of the next 20 minutes or so. On the other hand, it might inspire. Let's hope it's the latter, not the former. I can see why everybody finds you entertaining and therefore I will definitely put you in the same WhatsApp group as the Disc and Brain of Cape Talk, which is also highly entertaining. So there you go. Cool. <laughs> so Dr. Chris Smith is the Naked Scientist. He joins the show every Friday. I have a question here about could loud music deafen my dog? We all know that dogs can be incredibly um, sensitive to sound. Um, but what about, you know, especially me, I play my music loud. Every day, I'm dancing around in the living room. Can loud music deafen your dog? Well, dog's hearing works the same way human hearing does. And the way that is, is that you have an ear canal, which is a tube connected to the outside world. And at the other end of it, if you stick your fingers in your ears, dogs have got the same ear canal. There is an ear drum. That's a membrane of tissue, which when pressure waves from the outside world hit that they make it vibrate backwards and forwards and those vibrations are transmitted through a sequence of small bones to the inner ear which is called the cochlea and this is where you turn sound waves into brain waves because it converts the mechanical energy of movement those vibrations into pulses of nerve signals which are then transmitted to the brain and the brain decodes them and works out what it is that, that you your dog or, or any animal in fact because most ears work the same way what you're listening to now if you listen to sustained high level high intensity music or you are exposed to ex extremely loud sounds continuously it doesn't matter whether it's musical or not it's energy which is going into via that system your cochlea eventually you will cause destruction of a population of cells which are called hair cells. Those are in the cochlea. They are nerve cells with tiny sprays of hairs coming off the end which pick up the vibrations that you put into your cochlea. And it's the vibrations of the hairs that are converted into electricity in nerves. And if you lose those particular cells, then you lose the ability to be sensitive to sounds of different frequencies because different parts of your ear system are sensitive to sounds of different frequencies. And if you keep turning the volume up to 11 and listening to very loud sounds you eventually do destroy the ability of that mm. portion of the cochlea to decode sounds of those very loud frequencies. And unfortunately, the kinds of frequencies which are really common in the environment or in music or in speech are the, uh, common across all those different things. And so you tend to lose the parts of the cochlea that enable you to decode speech. And so that's why it becomes hard to understand people, especially in noisy environments. Now, your dog uses exactly the same system. Dogs do have sensitive hearing. And so if you're driving along in your car with the dog on the passenger seat and you've got the volume up to uh, ear-bleedingly loud levels, then, yes, yeah. you will be damaging your dog's hearing as well as your own. So it's better to be kind to your dog and uh, put on something that the dog does like and, uh, <laughs> and not too loud either. <laughs> right. 
Talking about dogs, we've got a question on the WhatsApp line. Why are certain breeds more aggressive than others? I have a massive Labrador. That's a gentle giant and a terror of a Jack Russell that bullies him. And that comes from Mark. Yeah, same. I don't have the Jack Russell, but I do have a Labrador that, that has an insatiable greed. And that's another behavioural trait, isn't it? And as the person who bred our dog said to me, you can never fill up a Labrador. You just keep feeding and they just keep opening its oh, mouth and, and more goes in and more goes in and the, and the belly inflates. These are all behavioural traits. They're all to do with the fact that these animals can be selectively bred to have those behaviours and have been. Originally, dogs didn't exist as a species. And more than 15 to maybe as far back as 25, 30,000 years ago, it was early humans who domesticated wolves and they selected for wolves that were less wild, more amenable to being trained, more amenable to coexistence alongside humans rather than just at the margins and they became this this new species of dogs but then subsequent to that we have concentrated certain traits in the animals that we've bred selectively because by breeding for certain characteristics you can concentrate those characteristics in in the breed and you'll get certain behaviors and that goes for body shape it goes for color and it also goes for behavior and it doesn't just apply to dogs actually there's quite a famous experiment that was done in europe uh, russia and is still ongoing actually where people took silver foxes and bred them and selected for certain characteristics calmness aggression timidity And when they saw those traits, they selectively bred them with more animals with the same traits to see if they could concentrate Mm. those traits in the animals. And they have. And so you've got a population of these animals that are being reared where they'll range from animals that are extremely docile and very forthcoming when they want to interact with people, they will, no problem, to animals that are downright terrified of people and will be very aggressive and lash out. All the same species, just being bred differently. What's different is that because each individual, everybody, everything on earth is genetically individual, um, that's obviously people who are Mm. twins, it's slightly different, but because there are genetic differences and those genes make subtle differences to the way that the brain wires itself up, you can select for certain characteristics that are informed and guided by those genes which then manifest as uh, a certain behaviour and that's exactly what happens with certain breeds of dogs. Fascinating. Remember, if you've got a question for uh, Chris, please, 021-446-0567. Chris, we've got a voice note in which we'd like to play for you. Just a question on the coronavirus. Why is it that there's all of a sudden then a huge drop and then it will all of a sudden just pick up again? What is that? Good morning. Well, the, the answer to this is that all infections follow a sort of boom and bust path. And it's because you get uh, sudden outbreaks caused by the fact that when you get a case, you don't just get one more case with an infectious disease. It spreads to more people in the next round than had it in the first round. That's the R number being greater than one. And for this SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes the uh, COVID symptoms, that R number can be three. So therefore, for each person, you get three more people who've got it, and then those three people give it to three more people, and those uh, now nine people give it to three more people, 27. So it goes up... Like compound interest. Well, it goes up even faster than compound interest. Mm. I I wish I got that much interest on my bank account at the moment. I'd be delighted. (laughs) But the, the bottom line is that it grows exponentially, because... As you look at the curve, you'll see that it starts off very shallow and then spikes up because you suddenly have got very large numbers of people giving to extremely large numbers of people. So you get an explosive outbreak. At that point, it pings on the radar and people do something about it. They notice 
or you end up with people uh, doing something to control it, or it robs itself like a fire burning very fast and very hot. It robs itself of fuel and oxygen, and then the fire dies down. And this is for a variety of reasons, but one of them is that you leave in your wake a bunch of people who are immune or dead, quite frankly. And as a result, you will get a spike and then a dip. But then it spreads to a new patch of people who can then start another outbreak and off it goes again. And you will see this sequence of waves and extrapolated over many years. We see this with things like the flu, for example. We also see it with with other seasonal infections and you'll get good years and bad years. And the reason is that you, you get a big population of people who are susceptible. When it then has an outbreak in those populations, you get a very big spike. Then it dies down having made everyone immune. And for a while, and perhaps for a year or two, you get very low levels of activity because you've got lots of immune people. But then quite quickly, the population being what it does, replacing itself with the birth of young people, the ageing of uh, older people, meaning they pass away, you get a bigger pool of people who are susceptible again, alongside natural loss of immunity, because that happens too. You lose your immunity to something you've seen in the past um, just with time and this increases the pool of susceptible people so it's right. more fertile soil for another outbreak again so we see this classic pattern of boom and bust so a lot of it has got to do then with humans regulating their behavior or responding yeah it's a combination of factors yeah. but w- yeah. what left to its natural devices you would just see this the selection pressures of an infection versus human immunity but because we superimpose on that public health measures our changed behavior because we're clever enough to recognize what's going on and do something about it you will interfere with that pattern and and therefore you will further make it more extreme so you'll get the outbreak and then people will distance themselves they'll put in place various health measures and so on which reigns it in and i know we're we're being told people are not changing their behavior much but people do and that helps to to knock things down and there are also public health interventions reminders to people go and get vaccinated don't uh, snuggle up too closely to people don't don't uh, coast you know go and socialize with people at the moment please stay away from other people these messages then translate into it stopping and all the infected people become immune and it goes away and then it moves on to a new area or those people forget those messages and off it goes again we're talking to the naked scientist answering all your questions about science even the weird and wacky ones it's dr chris smith we've got a question from jeff in nurtuk on the whatsapp line hi dr chris can you explain the second wind why does our body tend to go into such a state or is this purely just a mind state yeah it's it's psychological to a certain extent but there's also some hormonal underpinnings behind this by second wind it means you do something you get really tired and you're at the end of your tether but then as you see the end in sight you recover your ability to and reinvigorate yourself to to get the job done and you feel fresh again and you can do it this is all down to power of mind and power of mind being exerted through a range of signals to your body including nerve signals and and hormonal signals it's called the second wind i think because when people are in races and they're really flagging they often speed up towards the finish line you find that extra ability to dig deep in the last 100 to 200 yards and sometimes you can overtake a few other stragglers who are in front of you and uh, make sure you don't finish in last place i think that's where the phrase comes from but it's down to the fact that 
uh, power of mind and psychology is incredibly important to us humans and and the effect it can have on your body is very very profound indeed and when you see a goal in sight that you've been convinced you weren't going to succeed in you do find that extra ability to to dig a bit deeper and one of the ways you do that is to produce a big surge of adrenaline the stimulatory hormone from your adrenal glands this goes around in the bloodstream and it visits all, all your organs in your body and gives them an extra chemical kick and sometimes that's enough to give people that extra surge and there's another hormone which is um, a steroid hormone that's cortisol and you can also produce a big surge of that when you get uh, excited and that kind of thing and this also reinforces people's uh, abil- ability to, f- to to really ha- have a bit more uh, oomph when they when they need to it's what gets you out of bed in the morning but if you anticipate a big stress coming or at certain times of the day it peaks and so therefore you can get a second wind because of, of natural release of cortisol at certain times of the day as well power of the mind just incredible incredible stuff um, okay, from uh, the power of our minds to the power of these little guys who do some strange things. From Greg in Paro, why do ants go into my kettle? Most annoying. <laughs> well, the pro- well, what ants do is, as a social species, they are continuously making forays out of their nests because some ants, they're all females, but some of them are designated as foragers and some are designated to take care of the nest. And the foragers, their job is to go out and find food sources. And as they go out, they lay down behind themselves what's called a pheromone trail. So the ant goes along a bit, and they count their steps, so they know how far they've gone. And a certain distance, they will lay down a a chemical spot on the ground, and they make pathways where they have side branches in their pathways and the side branches are always at a certain angle to the main direction they're travelling in. And because they're always in a certain angle, when the ants read those smells, they can tell if the arrows, effectively the pathways, are pointing away or towards home. So that's how they know which way to go away from their nest or towards their nest. The idea is that once you've got one that finds something nice, then it goes back, tells its nestmates, and then they escort their nestmates back along those pheromone trails with the new ones coming along, reinforcing the trail as they go, making the smell even stronger so that it's more resilient and it tracks other ants. And in this way, they can find a food source, lock onto it, and then recruit the entire colony to go and exploit it. And it might well be that there's something juicy in that kettle that they found, or there's something stuck to the side of the kettle, or something sticky or sweet that got inside the kettle, inside the lib or the rim or something. Or, or there's some mould growing in there that they particularly like, and they are making ah. a, I can't say bee line, can I? They are social insects, but wrong species. <laughs> but they they make an ant line with one of these pheromone trails that then once one gets in there and finds whatever that is, it goes and gets all its mates to come along and take part in the party as well. And, and I'd clean your kettle really thoroughly and see if that deals yes. with the Yes. Because then they are, they're not going for the water, they're going for something else there. No, they don't need to go for the water. nutritious. No. That's right. The, the ants are going for... Uh, a, a big calorie re- reward that they can cart off in chemical form, i.e. sugar, back to their nest. And so they go for sweet things that they can suck up the sugar and then they go back and they disgorge that sugar into, uh, in some ant species, they basically a living larder in the form of a, a big ant that's, that drinks all this sugar water and then stores <laughs> it. And in other cases, they, they feed it via an intermediary to the, to the young in the nest. So that they're looking for a sweet, a high-calorie, quick reward 
and I suspect there's some jam or something smeared around that kettle, and they're finding that, and um, or or it's a fungus that's growing or mold that's growing that's that's producing something interesting that they like as well. That's another possibility. Or it's the salts because when you when you boil a kettle. They, yes, uh, you get water. salts in there. Sometimes ants are going for minerals and things because there are ant species that scavenge for specific minerals. There's, a, there's an amazing story of a parasite, actually. Oh. It lives in the Amazon. And uh, these ants will go and find bird droppings because bird droppings are very rich in phosphates. Phosphorus is very hard to acquire in nature. And so the ants go and find bird droppings around these trees. They take the, the droppings back to their nest to feed to the rest of their nestmates because it's a rich supply of phosphorus. That's why we use bird droppings as fertilizer or, you know, guano historically as, as, as a source yes. of fertilizer and, and nitrogen as well. And there's a parasite that lives in the birds, which it gets into the bird feces. And when the ants eat the bird feces, the parasite gets into the ant and it builds up in the back end of the ant, making it swell up and become bulging and red, bright red like a berry. So you've got these ants walking up and down on the tree with these bright red back ends that look like berries. So the birds come and eat the ant, putting the parasite back into the bird so the bird can then poo it out so other ants come and pick it up and it goes around in this amazing life cycle but but that's ants retrieving a mineral source from the environment as well as parasites so it could be that the, the kettle is a source of of minerals as well and that's what they're going for on the same topic um there's a question asking is this the same reason that ants go into electronic devices or do they go in there for the heat I don't know why they would go for a certain group of electronic devices. Sometimes it's because they find their way into somewhere like that and then they get fried. It's too hot and uh, oh. they, they, their signals oh, evaporate, their pheromones boil off in the heat of the circuit board. They just can't find their way out before they get boiled to death. And um, so they, they never make it back out. So you're more likely to find one in there because it's died in there and doesn't exit compared with elsewhere. And then somebody else wants to know, is a high number of ants in your home a sign of something dirty? No, ants, a uh, it, it's a sign that you live near a big ant's nest and that ant's nest may in <laughs> fact be in your house. Um, I, you know, we, we've all had this happen to us and the ants will just find their way in and they are positioning themselves nearest to the food source that they can. And a house is a great source of food. We drop just crystals of sugar, jam, bits of bread. These are all potential sugar and food sources for ants and, and they will yeah. come and clean up very nicely. Thank you. All right, away from the ants now. Hi, Doc. Underneath my left foot, there's a vibrating feeling. Is this something to be concerned about? Well, it depends. Um, everyone gets the odd sort of nerve tremor, muscle twitch and sensation of pins and needles. If it's a fleeting thing that comes and goes, it's occasionally there. Perhaps it's brought on by you being in a certain position. And I say that because under certain circumstances, if you adopt a certain posture, you can squeeze on nerves. And this can make the territory that that nerve supplies send back to the brain the perception that something's happening in that particular part of the body when it's not. It's just the nerve getting squeezed. Then that may be the trivial explanation. If it's uh, arrived abruptly, it's stayed there, it's persistent and hasn't gone away, then it might be something more concerning. And there's a range of reasons why people get twitching or numbness or uh, funny feeling patches of their skin. And there's a range of different reasons why that could be happening. If it is persistent, if it is abrupt in onset, it hasn't gone away, uh, as in over a long period of time, or it's getting worse, you should definitely get someone to take a look at that for you. We've come to our end. Thank you so much. It's half past ten. I can't believe it's gone so quickly. And you were right. You are a highlight. Well, like you can't you can't lose if you're first, right? In a race of one, if you don't win in a race of one, one something's gone really very wrong, isn't it? I mean, let's face it. So, it could all be it could all be uphill or or downhill from here. Let's find out. <laughs>
Let's keep fingers crossed that it's uphill. The Naked Scientist, Dr. Christmas, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Saskia. Bye-bye.